Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Thanks for listening to The Gist. If you want to check out an ad-free version and bonus content, go to subscribe.mikepesca.com. It is the best way to directly support our endeavors. It's Friday, February 24th, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. It is the anniversary of the war that even the president of Ukraine thought wouldn't happen, but did. Now Ukraine estimates over 100,000 Russian soldiers have been killed. That's probably high, but 50,000 killed, 150,000 wounded. That's quite plausible. The UN says 8,000 Ukrainian civilians are killed. That's low. The European Commission estimates 20,000. That may even be low. Ukraine itself estimates over 10,000 of its fighters have died fighting, but that's probably low. And remember, when civilians are forced to take up arms to defend their country, they do technically count as combatants, even if they wish they weren't. Of all the terrible miscalculations that Vladimir Putin made, one has been, I think, slightly overlooked. And it's a positive sign, I think, for battle lines beyond these. So Putin underestimated the resolve of the Ukrainians. He overestimated the might of his military. We've spoken with U.S. generals who point out that he underestimated the cost of kleptocracy he breathed into life, that so much Russian military readiness and armaments were undercut by graft. He underestimated the shared sacrifice of the rest of Europe. Natural gas consumption has declined quite a lot as a function of the war. And countries like Poland, Germany, France, they're not happy about it, but they're willing to accept it. Here's another overlooked Putin miscalculation. Putin made a mistake when he bet on the primacy of ethnicity. Nation states, their recent inventions, and the idea of a nation as a set of ideals and shared identity beyond just the borders on a map that defines territory of an ethnically distinct people, that is also new. So going into the war, Putin lied and exaggerated about the Ukrainian people, saying there was no idea of Ukraine before the Bolsheviks invented it. He also asserted that the Russian-speaking Ukrainians were really Russian and saw themselves as such. And to some extent, he knew he was lying and engaged in propaganda. That's what he does. But also, he really did think that Ukrainians who spoke Russian would identify as Russian. And he was wrong because it turns out they identify as Ukrainian. The Deniushkin family, who's been staying with us, and for which we are running a GoFundMe campaign that's raised almost $20,000, are from Odessa. Svetlana, first language, was Russian. She's one of those Russian-speaking Ukrainians. And now she is ashamed. She won't even call her native language Russian. She just says it's Ukrainian, even though she speaks perfect Ukrainian, certainly knows the difference. It's a similar language, but quite distinct. But when you bomb a people, they stop identifying with you. Indeed, writing for the Atlantic Council, Oleksiy Goncharenko notes that prior to the start of the war in 2014, Odessans were overwhelmingly supportive of Russia. Surveys indicated more backed Russia than elsewhere in the country, and this was after the 2014 occupation. This was true up to February 
24, 2022. So after the war started and the bombs dropped, a few months in, polls showed that 78% of Odessa residents expressed pride in their Ukrainian identity. 88% noted a major deterioration in their assessment of Russia's leaders, and 80% cited a sharp decline in feelings towards Russians in general. There's an interpretation of all this that goes, if they didn't feel Ukrainian before the war, they certainly do now. But I think it's more than that. I think it's that the people of Ukraine, who Putin saw as his people, saw themselves quite differently. Putin's Manichaean. He has a worldview that says us versus them. And he says to himself that these people, they were with us, with the Russians. Wrong. In fact, they transcended being defined by an ethnicity. They didn't abandon it, however. I believe the world over, what we're seeing as tribalism defining a people often gets it wrong. Many of us have ethnicities that play a role in our lives. It's just not the determinant of most of what we do. Putin observed ethnic wars in the Balkans, and Putin benefits from ethnic and tribal strife the world over. He interfered in U.S. elections trying to sow discord among and along tribal lines. But it doesn't work as well as he thinks, just like his tanks didn't work as well as he thought they would either. Russia still may win this war. Many more deaths and sacrifices will definitely result. But the idea of a tribal world inexorably at each other's throats, that idea should be counted among the casualties of the war in Ukraine. On the show today, dog law, Florida version. But first, another kind of law. Let's go to the Supreme Court, where in 1982, they issued a landmark ruling disallowing book bans in school libraries. In that ruling, Justice Brennan wrote, Local school boards may not remove books from school library shelves simply because they dislike the ideas contained in those books and seek by their removal to prescribe what shall be orthodox in politics, nationalism, religion, or other matters of opinion. So they can't do this, and yet they still do. And they're doing so in increasing numbers across America, according to Pan America. So what to do about it? I mean, it takes years for the Supreme Court to issue a remedy. Some of the high school seniors who might have wanted to check out Slaughterhouse-Five or Langston Hughes' best short stories by Negro writers, which were two of the books banned subject to that Supreme Court case, well, those kids, if they were in high school then, would have turned 24 by the time the Supreme Court issued the ruling in the case I quoted. So some state legislators have turned to the law, banning the bans by legislative action. And we are joined next by a Missouri state representative who has introduced just such a bill, Representative Doug Mann, up next. Hey, all you true crime fans, this is Mike Ferguson. And this is Mike Morphe. And we'd like to invite you to listen to our podcast, Criminology. Launched in 2017, we've covered a variety of strange cases from murders to missing persons. Some of the cases are ones you may not have heard of. Other cases we cover are some of the most historic in true crime. There are 200 episodes of Criminology available to binge on right now. And new episodes come out every Saturday night. Subscribe to Criminology today, wherever you listen to your podcast. According to PEN America, book banning has become, again, another huge trend in America. These are stats of April last year. They're, they found 1,500 bans of 1,100 unique book titles of 
a thousand authors, illustrators, and translators in 86 districts in the majority of states. So what is a state to do? What is a state legislator to do? There is a trend, let's call it a mini trend, of some Democrats in some state legislatures where book bans are prevalent to introduce legislation to try to thwart this. One such bill has been introduced in Missouri, and the sponsor is Doug Mann. Doug Mann's a civil rights attorney, full-time, because the state legislature gig is five out of 12 months a year, and he began his career teaching high school history and civics, and he joins me now. Representative Mann, thanks for being on The Gist. Thanks for having me. Is this a book banning bill or just a general education bill? Um, a little bit of both. Uh, I would say predominantly I started out drafting it as a uh, just a general education bill. Um, but as we've seen here in Missouri, um, there are attempts to ban books and ban the type of information that students can have access to. Um, and I think that this bill pushes back against that and hopefully secures uh, some knowledge for students. It seems hard, though, to ban a ban. Aren't you in some way engaged in, if not censorship, but uh, introducing the state into the selections of local libraries or local school districts? Um, not exactly. The bill, the language of the bill is it's a may bill and not a shall bill. Um, so the way that the bill is written, um, it deals with the teaching of LGBTQ history and districts wouldn't be required uh, to teach anything under this bill. Um, this would merely protect their ability to teach those things or have those materials available for students. So how is the bill written? What does it say about LGBTQ history? Um, so essentially, uh, it, the bill would allow um, for schools to teach um, the contributions of members of the LGBTQ community, uh, the persecution of the LGBTQ community, um, the different social movements within the LGBTQ community, uh, and allow for teachers to create curriculum uh, around those issues. But local school boards that have banned books with this content, I think will point to specific pages, graphics, sometimes depictions of sexual activity within the books and argue that it is not about the theme of the book or about LGBTQ history. Maybe if they're clever, they could even say, we have these three books about LGBTQ history. We have just banned these set of books because of concerns about age appropriateness or you know, graphic depictions of sex. So how does the bill address that? Or what do you think about that? Um, I think that there's definitely uh, age appropriateness concerns that people might have. And when teaching anything within history, uh, you have to make sure that you are taking age appropriateness into consideration. Uh, the bill leaves that open uh, for people. Uh, for example, whenever you're teaching um, Christopher Columbus, for example, right, we don't teach all of the atrocities that Christopher Columbus uh, undertook when we're talking to first and second graders. Uh, we leave that for the middle school and high school ages. So the bill does leave open room for school districts and individual teachers to make the decision on age appropriateness for content.
And what if they decide, well, the same books that were banned under the we don't want to teach LGBTQ or we didn't have to articulate a reason are now banned on some other set of reasons? What if that is their decision? Um, I would disagree with that decision. Um, I think that we should be opening up students' eyes to different perspectives um, more frequently. The American story and the story of world history as well is not one linear story with one set of heroes and one set of villains. It's a complex story with lots of different individuals. It's nuanced. It's complicated. And I think that we need to be teaching it in that fashion instead of trying to control the narrative in such a way that students are only getting one story. I agree with you. And maybe the school district that you went to when you grew up would agree with that. Somehow you got these ideas in your head. I know my parents who were teachers would agree with that, but we're really talking about the people who don't agree with that. That is the target and intent of the bill. It's not, I know it's a may not a shall, but it's a bill. It's not a referendum. It's not a general sense of the house type bill that we should have a uh, broad understanding of history. So can you predict if your bill passes, then we'll get to the actual practical matters at hand. How would a school district that would normally ban a book, what are the mechanisms that would prevent them from doing so? Um, Right now, there's nothing in the bill that would prevent them from doing that. Again, uh, this bill would purely protect those school districts and those teachers that are teaching this type of information. There's nothing that would mandate teachers or school districts to teach this information. Um, So it's up to them. What are the possibilities and chances of passing? I was monitoring, and this made national news, a bill out of uh, your house in Missouri um, about minors and carrying guns. And the idea was that for a minor to carry a gun on state lands, they would have to have parent permission. And that bill went down. That bill was defeated. And then I noted that the final vote was only 39 were in favor of a kid having to get a parent's permission to carry a gun and 104 opposed it. So how do you think the legislature will smile upon your bill? Well, it is true that I am a Democrat in the super minority. So my abilities to get things done are somewhat limited by my position. Uh, My hope is to take this bill and hopefully turn it into an amendment and then attempt to uh, attach it to another piece of legislation and hopefully get it through on that way. Um, I know that my chances of getting a hearing and going through the general bill process are very low, but I think the chances of getting it on an an amendment are a lot better. Sneaking it in or because secretly or maybe publicly the majority of the House actually agrees with what you're saying? Um, not exactly sneaking it in. It's a little bit hard to sneak in uh, amendments. Uh, but I do think that there are people on the other side of the aisle who would agree with this. And it's about it's about lobbying and building those relationships and trying to make the other side understand just like anything else uh, in government. So hopefully I can, if I can get this into an amendment and get it onto something, Um, we can get this through. I'm wondering though, if there's a playbook, if there's any sort of proven way to fight legislatively the book bans. This is an attempt. Who knows if it'll pass? Who knows if it does pass, what it'll do? But is there is there a playbook to draw upon to push back against book bans from the state level? 
I have not been privy uh, to any playbook. I think that right now we are all trying to keep our heads above water as we see these book bans and these curriculum bans come up. Um, this is something that is coming hard and fast at us. And as Democrats in very red states, um, it is hard to keep your head above water. Um, I'm sure that you've seen the slew of transgender bills uh, and other LGBTQ attacks that we have seen uh, here in Missouri and in other red states. And right now it's more just trying to put out fires. And this bill is trying to be proactive so that that fire doesn't pop up. And where do you think that energy is coming from? Do you think it is, even if you disagree with a desire to ban LGBTQ athletes from participating in high school sports, let's say, do you think it's a sincere opinion of most of the people of Missouri? Or do you think it's been, I don't know, more um, demagogue by opportunists? And if you really polled the people, they would not find that to be a priority or even something that was in their interest. Well, I'll definitely say when I was knocking doors in my election this last year, um, banning student athletes was not something that came up from any of my constituents. Uh, they were more worried about abortion rights. They were more worried about the economy. They were more worried about making sure that they could put gas in their tank and food on their table. Uh, so I think that right now, this is something that you could see a potentially, you potentially see a good amount of Missourians worried about. But I think that the fire is being stoked uh, by the powers that be. Um, an example of that would be uh, we had a controversy around a uh, drag performance here in Columbia, where I am. And that made statewide news. Uh, and one of the senators uh, from the area said that his uh, office was getting inundated with uh, messages from constituents about this atrocious performance uh, that took place. But a Sunshine Request showed that he did not get any messages from any constituents until he tweeted out about his disdain for it. So... I think that we have evidence that these issues are being stoked by the powers that be in order to score political points. Yeah. And so listeners know you're in Columbia. This is where the University of Missouri is. This is the most, uh, this is the bluest part of, well, maybe inner city, uh, Kansas City or St. Louis. But in general, this is a really progressive area where they probably had drag performances for a decade and no one cared or objected. Yeah, this is definitely a progressive area, um, and there's drag performances that happen basically every week. Uh, we have Drag Time Story Hour. Um, actually, we had a drag performer come to my church at one point in time. Uh, so yeah, that gives you an idea of the progressive nature of the area. I view it as somewhat of a panic about drag performers. Where do you think, do you, and where do you think that's coming from? Uh, it's definitely a moral panic that we're seeing. And I think that, you know, this is nothing new. Uh, moral panics coming up from the right. Um, at one point, it was that gay marriage was going to absolutely destroy society and all marriages were going to fall apart if we allowed uh, gay individuals get married, but then it became no long. It became passe to make that argument. So 
they had to move on. And now they've moved on to transgender athletes and drag performances as a way to, like I said, stoke the fire uh, under the base and keep people angry. So you didn't go to the state house because of panics over uh, book banning. You want to do other things with your time in office. I'm sure there are some people of the 163 who are very happy to take advantage of this issue. But what percentage, even of the overwhelming number of Republicans, do you think, would you assess, are into this? Think that, yeah, this is part of my job to represent my constituents about drag queens. And just from your personal interactions or any other ways of gleaning, what percent roll their eyes and say they themselves did not come to Jefferson City to do this sort of job? Um, I would venture to say that the majority of the rank and file Republicans uh, see this as being ridiculous. I have personally had Republican representatives come to me and to my colleagues and tell us that they disagree uh, with this legislation, but they are required to vote a certain way. Um, they are basically told by their leadership that if they don't vote a certain way, that they will be punished, they will be retaliated against. And that's really problematic when you talk about democracy, because we all represent around 37,000 constituents, and we should be allowed to vote our conscience and vote for our constituents' desires and needs. Um, and like you said, we should be focusing on many other things that are much more important. Missouri ranks near or at the bottom in maternal mortality, education spending, educational achievement, uh, healthcare access. These are all things that we could be focusing on and things that we could be solving, but instead we are focused on transgender athletes and drag shows. Yeah, that's the education agenda, right? Uh, athletes in the schools and book banning and your state is, I believe, 47th in spending for teacher salaries. Yes, it's, uh, it's definitely an interesting set of priorities for Republican leadership. How do you break the fever if the dynamic is that even a large percentage, you said the majority of Republicans aren't into the trans ban, what do you do to surface that and make the actual will of not just the people, but the representatives, the um, agenda of the body? What techniques are there? Um, well, right now, uh, some of our focus is in the committees, just making sure that we are asking those questions, making sure that stories are told. Uh, when the transgender bans uh, came up into committee, we had a nine-hour hearing uh, with story after story after story of transgender individuals, student athletes, uh, saying that they were against these things. Um, and our hope is that when those stories are told and when Republican members are forced to listen to those stories, that those can change hearts and minds. Um, there's also working behind the scenes, uh, trying to support those Republican legislators that are willing to step up and work against what their leadership is saying and try to protect these children uh, that are being attacked. Doug Mann represents Missouri's 50th congressional district in the state house. Thank you so much, Representative Mann. Thank you for having me.
And now the spiel. Florida, a state with a number of great ideas and two leading right-wing presidential candidates residing there, three of Camp Bolsonaro, has come up with another wonderful plan. Now, just as some say puns are the lowest form of humor, they're not. Others say state legislator introduces a bill is the easiest form of political alarmism. Even so, it was unusual. It was, dare I say, odd to hear this one particular detail of Florida Senate Bill 932. Fox 13 Tampa Bay had their reporter deliver the entire report through a car window to, I suppose, model proper schnauzer protocol. A new proposed Senate bill could change that. It would ban drivers from holding a dog in their lap or allowing a dog to extend its head or any other body part outside a motor vehicle window. They went on to quote dog owner Gabby Grejarina. Listen, they only enjoy a handful of things, and that's on the top five for sure, so we can't take away their rights. Okay, they don't have rights. It would be a paw full of things, not a handful, and dogs certainly enjoy more than five activities. What kind of dog does she have? Dogs basically enjoy everything but thunder and waiting to have that satellite dish removed after surgery. The Florida bill does have some sensible provisions banning cat declawing and keeping a statewide registry of animal abusers on hand. But there's also section one, subsection C, which would no longer allow a dog to extend its head or any other body part outside a motor vehicle window while the person is operating the motor vehicle on a public roadway. And then there's the next section, which will disallow D, transportation of a dog at any time on the running board, fender, hood, or roof of a motor vehicle, in the trunk of a motor vehicle, or in an enclosed motor vehicle space intended for cargo. Now, this raises a huge area of constitutional uncertainty regarding the van riding scene in Teen Wolf. Under Florida law, would Scott be considered a teen or a wolf? Remember, it's a teen wolf, not a wolf teen. And just as tiger sharks are sharks and elephant seals are seals, wouldn't a teen wolf be a wolf and therefore subject to the dog restrictions? They do define dog as member of the Canis family. And I hope that was responsive, Justice Thomas. Well, it's responsive, but I don't understand that you called... uh... Wow, we started off with dogs out of windows and wound our way around to Clarence Thomas. You never know where the gist is going to take you. Now, I can report that today, just two days after the bill's introduction. It has been changed. The declawing of cats, still covered in the bill. Transporting of dogs and trucks on roofs, sorry, roofs, still included. But the provision about dog heads outside of windows has been removed. Not the dog heads, the provision. I can say I'm glad to have known about it, however, because while researching this bill, I went to many other sites for Florida local news stations, and oh, the stories they tell. A woman eaten by a gator, a student beats a teacher's aide unconscious after taking away a Nintendo Switch, and then there was this from Channel 2 Orlando. Employees inside the Oak Lawn Funeral Home wouldn't go on camera. Why would you want funeral home employees on camera? But they told me they're cooperating with the investigation Uh following an employee's report that they walked in on a co-worker sexually abusing a corpse. Luckily, Channel 2 Orlando was able to secure a man-on-the-street reaction. That is wild. Indeed it is. But this man, Tim Brown, wasn't just on the street. He was a little off the street in the funeral home's parking lot because he had just lost his father and had chosen this funeral home to hold the service. I can imagine the interviewer telling him, 
you know, it must be a tough time for you. I understand that. But you may want to know about some extra services that aren't going to be showing up on the official invoice. Brown actually seemed to be taking the news in stride. That does give me second thoughts. Indeed. But Tim Brown applied logic to what could have been a very emotional situation. But I think he's already been cremated, so I think he's safe. Wow. Way to keep a cool head in the face of disturbing news. Sort of like a Florida dog. Floridians, they have a lot to deal with. A lot of aspiring political leaders and a lot of crazy distractions. But they still keep their heads about them. And when it comes to four-legged Floridians, that means both inside and still outside of cars. Mike Pesca, news on your side. WGST, Pescacola. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the just producer. Joel Patterson's the just senior producer. Michelle Pesca, COO of Peachfish Productions. No longer allowed to ride with her head outside of the car. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Lipson's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperu, Gperu, Duperu. And thanks for listening. Mike Pesca, news on your side. WGST, Pensacola. Pescacola, Tallahassee. Pushai. Orlando. Lake Okefenokee. Wish I, wish I sock from. WGST, covering all of the Treasure Coast.